welcome to another episode of Mentors on the Mic podcast. If you are currently navigating the entertainment industry and always looking to learn and get ahead, or you wish to start your career and not sure where to start, this is the podcast for you. I talk with everyone from showrunners to casting directors to agents to network executives, all in an effort to break down careers and give you a blueprint on how to get to where you want to go. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Mentors on the Mic on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. Rate the podcast five stars and give us a good review. It genuinely helps, and I read every one. If you want, join our mailing list to hear more about our weekly episodes and get the chance to submit questions to upcoming guests. The link for that is in the show notes and my Instagram bio, at Michelle Simone Miller or at Mentors on the Mic. Okay, now for our wonderful mentor this week, casting director Maribeth Fox of Laura Rosenthal Casting. Some favorites include The Kids Are All Right with Annette Benning, Julianne Moore and Mark Ruffalo, Mildred Pierce with Kate Winslet and Evan Rachel Wood, The Detour, Late Night with Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson, and more. She's at three upcoming projects, including Bottoms with Kaya Gerber and produced by Elizabeth Banks, Sharper with Julianne Moore and Sebastian Stan for Apple TV, and Murder Mystery 2 with Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler and a mentor from this podcast, Tony Goldwyn. We talk about these projects in the end, but we also touch on auditions, self-tapes, submission preferences, her specific process for selecting actors for auditions, starting at Buckwald Agency, and some other interesting things I've always wanted to know and have never asked casting directors. It's such a great interview. Let me know what you think of it on Instagram, at Mentors on the Mic. Without further ado, here's Maribeth Fox. Hi, Marybeth. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Michelle. I'm so happy to be here today. I'm very, very excited to talk with you. I feel like I haven't seen you. I think I've taken a class with you way back when, but it was a while back. And I remember I was looking through my emails today and I was reading back a scene that you assigned me. And I was like, I have no memory of this scene. So <laughs> that felt really good inside. Oh, man, what have I been through that I can't remember like sides at all? I think we've been through um, a global pandemic. Yeah. No, that's yeah. exactly what it was. Yeah. That's yeah. the big thing that's <laughs> made my memory kind of crazy. But anyway, thank you for being here. And I always start off with the same question. What was your first role in the entertainment industry? My first paid role in the industry was working for two badass agents at Don Buckwald and Associates. And I started as their assistant and Hannah Roth was just getting promoted to be an agent. And so I was her first assistant. So I have to interrupt only to say that we had John Mason on the podcast, who's oh. also at Buckwald for a long time. And I asked him, I said, listen, did you know Maribeth when you were there? And he said, he was like, no, Maribeth came. She left before I got there. But we both worked for Hannah Roth. And she, he was like, ask her about how was it working for Hannah? It was great. Hannah did such a beautiful job teaching me how to work professionally in the industry how to talk to actors, what actors need. And she's a really good advocate for actors. And so that was where I first learned kind of how to deal and manage actor ego and maybe a little bit of neuroses in a really positive way that's super respectful to artists. So I always really appreciate she had a real eye for details. She would scour contracts. And it also just helped me to watch her attention to detail, know that that was not the right job for me. I'm going to be such a good buyer, but I am not a very good seller. So that's when I knew I had to make the switch. How early did you figure that out? Because that is another part of the industry. And I, I think people start off and they don't know what they're going to do at the end of the day. Did you know going into being an agent that you wanted to be in the industry, but you didn't know 
what or did you think maybe you wanted to be an agent? So I um, graduated after September 11th. So the economy was kind of in the garbage. And I yeah. applied for so many jobs in the entertainment industry and randomly saw a posting for Buckwald. I actually interviewed for the voiceover department and the voiceover department met me and said, you are not right for this department, but boy, do we have the job for you. And they sent me up right upstairs that moment. And I met with Hannah and a woman who is still working at Buckwald named Ricky Olshan, who is pretty yes. legendary, and met with Ricky and got the job the following day. But no, I didn't think, I didn't know what I wanted to do in the industry. I had interned a lot in college at Sesame Street and NBC and was starting to cross things off my list to go, oh, yeah. that is very much not suited for my lifestyle. I love to sleep, so production work doesn't work for me. I don't want to make $25,000 a year when I'm 50, so Sesame Place doesn't work for me. Yeah. Oh, wait, it's not Sesame Place. Sesame Place is an amusement park in Philadelphia that I very yeah. much also did not want to work at. But Sesame Workshop, I wanted to, you know, I had bigger financial aspirations. I just crossed off the list and learned the assistant ropes there um, at a place called Professional Artists, who are, they're also great people. Yeah. And they taught me a ton. And so I was kind of ready to go as an agent assistant. I think once I started to watch Hannah and Ricky and other people in the department work and kind of how they related to actors, I almost felt more like a psychologist sometimes. And that was not a comfortable fit for me. What part of it was like a psychologist? I'm curious. So I think I spent a lot of time talking actors off of ledges. And that was a surprising thing. And I was I was young. I was 22. I had no life experience. And these very famous people would call sometimes having just, you know, not gotten the feedback they wanted or no feedback at all. And managing their expectations and egos was tricky. I also, I didn't love watching people sure. get dropped. It like broke my heart. You know, watching, I'll never forget a comedian went into the office and I knew he had two kids, young kids, and we weren't going to continue repping him anymore. And I just couldn't manage the emotion of that. I also just felt like I was missing out on something really special because as an agent, you get to go watch your clients do theater or maybe watch them in a movie or on TV. But I was like, but I want to like experience it. I want to be there and advocate in a different way for them. And uh, even though actors get themselves jobs, casting doesn't get you a job. Actors get themselves jobs by doing the work. I was like, I think I need a more direct connection between the actor's artistry and them achieving their goals. And I feel like casting is a great fit for them. Wow. And, and, you're, and you're way more hands-on in the actual work. Like when you look at a work at the end of the day, you go, I had this hand in that. As an agent, you have a hand in it, but you have a hand probably in way more projects. And it's a small little, I helped that person get this role in terms of getting a, an appointment and all the support that's needed, which I keep hearing about, man. I keep hearing about all the support you lean on your reps for. It's a tricky thing, but that does make a lot of sense that there's a lot of psychology to that that I hadn't even thought about. And then, so did you make the switch into casting right after? I did. Well, I spent a strange six months in publicity in transition, and that was not, I mean, it was like this old school publicity office. Everybody smoked cigarettes. The walls were like smoke stained. And it was just a place to be, I think, for six months. And I learned some things and I knew very much that this is not the life that I wanted either. And then I got a call from my dear friend Jody, who I now am a casting director with in our office. And she said, 
I think there might be an opening at CBS in our department. Do you want me to put in a word? And I said, I stink like cigarette smoke. Please, please put in a good word for me. And I got the interview at CBS Primetime Casting. So how was it making the switch that first day? Like going in that first week, going, I have obviously a familiarity with what you guys do. But what was that first week like? It was wild. It's a whole different side of things. And it was very exciting to get to my office was right outside of the lobby. And so I would get to see the actors that I recognized and wanted to know better coming in for their reads. And, you know, the stuff that I think was would normally be sort of annoying to people. I really liked like in the old school days, wasting, killing all those trees, printing headshots and resumes of who'd be seen for the day. We had all this old technology that like maybe some days I get to go into the room and run this huge VCR system where we'd have to physically rewind in the fuzz wow. of the space if you wanted a second take. I mean, just, but I was so excited by getting to see the end of the day and what my bosses had done in the room and watching it all. And I was like, oh, yes, I think because I'm excited by the things that normal humans would be annoyed by, I think this is a good fit. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice to think about, just like how exciting it was that first few days and just being with people that it was it seems like a really good environment. Obviously you already knew Jody, so that's part of it. But it's nice that you were like, okay, you spent so long going, you know, doing these internships and, and working at Buckwald and going, these are not the right fits for me. And then you found obviously the right fit. So that makes me really happy. And isn't that um, true? And it just continues yeah. into your twenties, right? Because I spent two and a half years at CBS and then I was like, oh, this is also not the right fit. You know, and then you kind of I think every basic human these days is like, oh, it was the universe or whatever. But I mean, I went to my boss at the time and I said, you know, I'm really interested in film and TV, but I really want to pursue independent film. And she said, my friend Laura Rosenthal is looking for someone for an eight week film. Are you really ready to go freelance? And right. it means no, you know, like no health care to speak of, no fancy expense account, no 401k. And I just thought of my Midwestern parents sweating in Wisconsin, but I was ready to make the leap. And so an eight week job has turned into a 15 year career with Laura. Ooh. Well, so let's break that down for a second. So aside from all the things and all the benefits that come from working at a network, what are some other differences that you saw that you experienced on a day to day basis that's different than working essentially freelance, but you're working for, you know, at a casting office. Yeah. I mean, so we all have to take a time machine when I talk about this because it was a long time ago and things are really different. So let's start yeah. there. So I think the feeling that I got was I always wanted to be a really active part of the process, which is what you touched on. Like, I really wanted to be as involved as I could. And my bosses were great and gave me lots of opportunity to be in the room. And I, I got to start auditioning, which is kind of where everybody starts to kind of get your feet wet a little bit. But the thing that I never kind of saw the result of was, you know, we'd work so hard during pilot season, traditional network TV season. We'd right. be there until midnight, one in the morning. We're sending VCRs overnight in FedEx and like crying when we miss the FedEx truck. And it was high drama, high stakes. And then at the end of the day, you looked at your numbers at the end of the season with your bleary eyes. It just, there weren't enough New York actors in the pilots that I felt like, oh, I am giving these artists opportunities. And I just started to feel like I just need a more direct connection, New York to New York. And I think that's film. Obviously, that makes me really 
just warms my heart. That is something that I hadn't thought about, that really when you're working at a network, there's just so many pilots, you know, pilot after pilot, and most of them don't get picked up. Most of them you never see again. And then on top of which, like you said, there's only a certain amount that they probably will hire out of New York. So it's like just the numbers just dwindle. All that work that you've done just kind of dwindles. So I, I don't know why I didn't think about that. That's huge. So you decided, okay, films are probably a better route. I mean, granted, you guys do a lot of television. Yeah. But I get at the time. So films are a better route. So you have this eight-week gig. Which film was it? It was a film called Last Chance Harvey with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. And it was great. And it was just such a different, you know, Laura's a real vibe in a great way. And I had only been working for Laura for a few weeks and doing a similar job that I did to CBS. But she was like, hey, I just got this phone call from a producer that I've worked with before. And she's got this little movie. Do you want to work on it? And I was like, like me? Just me? She was like, yeah, just you. I don't have interest in time right now, but do you want it? And I was like, yes. And the fact that she gave me that opportunity to spread my wings at, I think, a very young age and trusted me with that after only a few weeks, it was one of my first huge growth experiences. And so that faith that was put in me was very indicative of the rest of our relationship would look like. So we're at CBS. We leave CBS. We're now with Laura Rosenthal. And so then tell me about the sort of consistently, you know, working for her as opposed to going the freelance route and going, okay, I'm going to go to that person now. I'm going to go to that show. I mean, I think part of it might be that Laura Rosenthal just is so busy and she has all these projects. There's no need to kind of go anywhere else, especially if you're enjoying it. But I just kind of wanted to ask, there's a lot of people do tend to jump around a lot, which is great. Yes. So I think it was the way that I was supported And I could also see, so yes, we were always very practically busy enough where I could just go job to job. Maybe there'd be a week or two of unemployment, or as we like to call it, rice and beans time, you know, when you're like a little dicey on the paycheck. But mostly we had great jobs coming in with amazing auteur directors that I was always really excited to work with. And then in the meantime, Laura was very gracious and generous at always sharing credit, which improved the look of my resume quite a bit, and also just gave me really good stretch opportunities. Eddie Burns came in and was a longtime director of hers a few years in and said, I have this job. And she was like, I actually have two things going right now and I cannot do it. And she was like, public morals. It was Nice Guy Johnny first. Oh, it was Nice Guy Johnny. And then it was, we moved on together with Public Morals and Eddie was happy, thankfully, to just keep working. I mean, technically, Laura and I were both on Public Morals and both did work on it, but I was the point for that job. And that's where I really developed the deeper relationship with him. So, and also she's a mom. She's a mom of yeah. two kids. And I could kind of see the future of like, I need to make sure that I'm somewhere where I know my work-life balance is going to be respected because that's something that I want someday. Yeah. And that has really come to fruition. I've got a really good work-life balance with my kids. And I think you have to have a boss that cares about that. Well, first of all, fantastic and completely understandable. And then also back to Eddie Burns for a second. We had another um, mentor on the podcast named Mike Hara, who was also a producer. I don't know if you know him, but he was a producer on both of those films. And so... I remember going through the stuff and going, oh, Eddie Burns, I'm going to ask about that. I don't know how many. And that's a question I'm going to also go into later, which is just how many clients do you usually have to like confer with on an average basis? Because sometimes there's a lot of producers attached to a film. And I imagine sometimes you only need to 
talk to a couple in terms of like getting approval. But I was just curious as to, you know, do you know Mike Harrop? Does he sound familiar to you? I don't know if he was involved in any of the casting decisions, to be honest, but there's just so many producers sometimes on films. They all do different things. It's true. And I think we always get a sense, something that I've been trained to do is you have to get a sense of who your people are and specifically who your liaison is. So usually there's one producer. A lot of times it's the line producer further along the line, but there's multiple people who you can kind of lean on and count on. And then just very practically that you need them because you have to get them to approve what you're doing. The number tends to be higher in TV than in film. And it is one of the trickier parts of the job, to be honest, when you have so many cooks in the kitchen. And I think the real gift jobs are the ones, you know, like I remember we were doing Mildred Pierce with Todd Haynes. And there were about 100 people in that cast. And it took us a full year to work on, which was such a gift. It was such a beautiful project. And HBO, we would send our casting to HBO for approval. And they would say nothing because they were like, no, Laura Rosenthal and Todd Haynes are longtime collaborators. We trust your taste. There was only one role out of, I think, 110 that HBO was like, "Mm, screech, stop. I'm not quite sure that that's right. And I have to say they were absolutely correct. Um, And we kind of revisited the role and cast somebody that was more right. So those are really rare experiences now, unfortunately, where people go, okay, hands off. You guys know what you're doing. But it can be a lot of producers that have a say. And in the best case scenario, it's like two or three. Got it. It's a lot of personalities to navigate on a well, regular also, basis. You know, poor actors, right? I was talking to an actor the other day and about their self-tapes, and I was saying, you know, I think sometimes what actors are in the mode of now three years into this global pandemic and self-taping is instead of just doing what they feel really proud about as artists, they're trying to guess what they want. And I think the danger of that is that there are so many subjective, opinionated things. And by my count, it's six. So TV is casting associate, casting director, showrunner, episode director, studio, and network. I think it's pretty similar in film. And so how are you going to think as an artist if you're trying to subjectively please six people with differing opinions? At the end of the day, you just have to do what's going to be best for you. Yeah, it's a hard one to try to aim for, but I hear what you're saying. And I always try to remind myself personally that, you know, I mean, I think I had an audition last week and I remember like I submitted it and afterwards it doesn't happen often. But in this particular one, I was like, you know what? I really liked what I did. And obviously, if there's any sort of redirect, which doesn't happen often, I feel like with self tapes, I know it's sometimes if you guys have enough time, it's easy to do. But I really haven't felt it. Unless you get that feedback, you really have no idea. All you know is you just, you know, from an actress perspective, you just don't get it. Yeah, That's all you know. There's this element of like it's a black or white thing. And so you kind of have to make sure that you're like giving yourself enough positive self-talk where you're like, you know what, I just did like I did what I felt was right. It's hard to even and I, I like how you thought of it, like in terms of the six people minimum, probably that you're going to have approve you at the end of the day, right? Approve what you do because you can't subjectively understand, like know what each of them are going to look for. In fact, they might be debating about it as we speak for all we know. And then we don't know what ends up happening with the character. I mean, sometimes the character gets cut. So you just, no one ever gets it. Sometimes it, the gender changes. Sometimes the age changes. 
Sometimes you just someone else had the right fit for whatever reason. And it's just so out of our control. Actors, man, we just (laughs) it's a psychological mind game, to be honest. It really is. And no wonder that actors heads are so full, because I think without that sense of feedback, you know, the real gift of being in a live audition, I could always tell when an actor left the space how they think the read went. Yeah. And a lot of times they were incorrect. So they'd leave and their body language looked like I just murdered a puppy in front of them. Yeah. And I was writing in my notes, star, excellent read, good sense of character, send to director. Right. And then the opposite was often true because maybe they felt great, but physically they were a blonde and I cast three blondes and the director doesn't want to dye hair. And so I can't even send them. Exactly. You just never know. But I feel like there was a gift in the perception of what might have happened, that even that inch of perception is a gift. And so the lack of that, I think, is is tricky because you just feel like you're sending things out into, to avoid as an actor. That's how it feels. It feels, I think I called it the abyss earlier. Oh. I think you just feel like you're sending it off into the abyss. And theoretically, we have to think, we have to forget about it. But there's this element of like, I don't know, man, like I... Don't know if anyone's there watching, but and you know that they are. But there's this element of because no one's responding, you're like, it does feel like a void or an abyss, but it's okay. I mean, it is what it is. It's just part of it. And, you know, but it's going to say something else about that as well, which is that, oh, the, sometimes other things happen too. Sometimes, you know, you're in the room and both the casting and acting actor feels like they did a great job. I've once, and this only happened once, I think, but. In the room, the casting director was like, I'm going to really push for you to get this. I think you're perfect for it. And I didn't get it. And that happens, too. It's so almost random sometimes that you can't put so much attention to each role, which is a weird thing. And not to go, I'm going to go on a tangent now, but it's a weird thing because as a creative, you're putting so much creatively into something. And then you kind of have to remove yourself from wanting it that much or wanting it but not caring about getting the result of it it's a weird process we have to go through but you know everyone has to go through something so well and i think too the the job of acting is so interesting it's so unique to any other art form because letting it go is so difficult because we're actually not judging like you're not standing in front of something that you've created so it's not like i'm standing there judging your painting for me, I don't do musical theater and no one sings for me. So I'm not judging a song or how well you can sing or dance. I'm right. actually judging your emotional capability at a human level. And how do you let that go if it's a role you really want as an actor? I think that's tricky. Right. I yeah. don't know. And also to break off, I think at least for this, I broke it off a while back, but you have to break off this idea of if you book this, life will change. Oh, that's a weird one. And I've talked to series regular actors who are in series regular roles, but that's a weird one because you also have to sign stuff that's like, okay, I'm committing to this for seven years. Like my life will change dramatically if this continues. And if this, you're setting yourself up for that and then you might not get it. And there's this, just this element of like, okay, remove yourself from what the results could do to your life and could do to your career. In addition to, I just want to be able to play that role that I loved, you know? It's a weird dynamic and balance. But I did want to continue about self-tapes because you brought that up as well. And the first thing actors always want to know, I'm sure you get this in Q&As all the time, is what are some self-tape tips that you have? What are things that you see all the time from actors in submitting roles and that you like? 
how much does obviously lighting and sound like do you get like really terrible sometimes i i mean that's the that's the weird thing to me that i think to myself because i know i guess in my head i know so many good actors and i know their their self tape setup is passable or doable but i do hear that a lot from um from casting directors on the podcast that they're just like yeah, sometimes I have to try to blow out the sound because it's like I can't hear it or the lighting is so bad and I can't see anything. And I'm just like, who are these actors that are like, man? Yeah, it is. You know, unfortunately, the bad news of the self-tape game is it's actually a question of privilege. Who can afford to go to B&H and bump yeah. up a sound system and pay the 40 bucks for a chroma key backdrop? And so... I always feel a little bit sensitive about the tech of it all because tech equals money. So I think what's most important is, and also actors have really figured it out during this global pandemic thing. Like the tech is so much better than it's ever been. And you touched on something really important where I, I need to be able to see you. That doesn't mean ring light. That could mean sunshine. I need to be able to hear you. And even more importantly, I need to hear your reader. Because your right. reader helps me out with the storytelling just as much as you do. But mostly that's in place. I think the thing that is kind of a, a new trend, and this is so subjective and 100% only my opinion, and the next casting director you interview might say differently, I think artists are getting a little bored. And so what I'm starting to see is almost people taking on the job of self-tape as a short film. And you know, being very literal, like, oh, this scene is in a kitchen. So I will tape in my kitchen. And the thing about that is, even though I've never gained an attention deficit disorder diagnosis, and don't think I'm really prone to it, I think sitting in my Brooklyn bedroom all day long watching hours of self-tapes causes me to be distractible. Right. And I, I think that, you know, the addition of a lot of props, very literal wardrobe, moving. You know, I think the key to a really good self-tape is knowing that one side of your brain needs to be for self-tape and one side of your brain needs to be how you'll do it when you have an awesome self-tape and you book the job and you're on the set. The movement should be really simple. The framing should be chest up and decent. The eye line, I need to see your eyes because I don't get a sense of your personality in the room anymore. And that's a real yeah. miss. You know, I don't get a sense of your whole body. All I've got is your eyeballs. And so actors are trying to like DP themselves and go into these like cheated profiles. I'm like, but I'm missing your work. Just have a good eyeline, please. And then there's still really bold, amazing work that actors are doing. Playful, curious choices. And I think you have to be extra brave these days as an actor to make those brave, bold choices because you're not getting instant feedback in a room. And because there's, you know, more and more, I'm sure you've experienced this, every script is becoming confidential. Yeah. And that's not a casting call. You know, that's other people way above our pay scale saying, oh, no, we cannot possibly release this low budget indie to the masses. And it's like, well, it's not Star Wars. So I think we're okay. Yeah. And then it doesn't give actors a tonal clue. So as an actor, if you don't have the background, how do you make those brave, playful, bold choices yeah, and not fear that someone's going to call you too big, theatrical, over the top, all the horrible things that actors are noted with. It's a tricky space. Well said. Well, first of all, the tips are great. So I appreciate that. Even just being straightforward, even saying, listen, for you personally, you don't like all the extra. 
And I get it. Like, I'm one of those people that if I see something and there's books in the background of the video, I'll be like, what books are those? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> have I read that? Oh, my God, that was great. You know, and you're like, OK, no, focus. This is not about that. So I get it. So it's just very undistracting. Undistracting. I less could, distracting. Yeah, less distracting. Undistracting, less though, distract- is a wonderful word. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. It sounded very <laughs> off to me. Wonderful. And then what are your... I did want to ask about your submission preferences. A lot of actors talk about it, and it's always different, which is surprising because you think at this point there'd be something sort of streamlined. And so what I mean by that is, do you like having everything in like one video, right? Like, let's say there's two scenes, so a take for each scene maybe, and then you have slate. Do you like that all in one submission? Do you like separate submissions for each take and for slate? What's your preference as to submission? So from my voice, I don't care, but I'm going to speak for my casting assistants out there. And I think it's probably easier for them to have separate everything um, because then they don't have to edit for us. And the beauty. And so I want to speak to that just for a second, because I think there's a lot of lore going around these days about self tapes where I don't even think casting is watching. And I'm going to tell you why I know casting isn't watching. It's because my Vimeo or my WeTransfer has no views. Yeah. It's like, well, yes, that is because the casting assistant is uploading it to breakdown services for me to watch it there. So don't worry about that. We are watching every single self-tape. And yeah, split them up for us if you can. It makes my casting assistant stay easier. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. And then what is the process of so- for you anyway, for selecting actors for an audition? What's that like? What's your process? How does it start? So first, it depends on a little bit on the size of roles. So let's talk in like the supporting or like larger role category. I like to always start from my brain. And what that does is it kind of makes it an even playing field where it's not just like, oh, well, this is a larger role. So it's the initial agencies or it's like bigger, more well-known actors. It's like, no, no. My first list is just to people that I really enjoy. And I will write out a list per character and give that to my assistant to set up first. And then I will go through the breakdown. I look at every submission. I don't offer preference of certain agencies. I don't click around by any means. The only time I do that is to make sure that everybody has submitted, that I need to submit. Like if I know so-and-so has a really good youth department and they haven't submitted yet. I'll go to that section to make sure that everybody that I need to has. But other than that, I go through everything. And that's part of the perspective of learning taste and what the taste of the office is and what the taste of the director is and trying to figure out who the best dinner party guests are going to be for the world you're trying to create. And that's based on headshot. If I don't know you, it's based on having a good eye-filled what a weird thing to say. I filled. I mean, you can leave that in, but like, I need to be able to read your eyes. Like, I think a lot of people are focused on a lot of things in a headshot, but as humans, our eyes go to each other's eyes. And so if your eyes are a little dull or non-specific, or it's just a beautiful photo of you, that's probably not the best headshot. I want your headshot to be a representation of the most you that you are. I think there's a new trend that is, I think, again, subjectively a little bit cheesy of like, Well, you need your law and order shot because casting could never imagine what you look like in a suit jacket. We do get that. And and the no makeup. We need a lawyer shot. We need, you know, an assistant shot. We need a mom shot. And 
Do you just okay. want me to look really tired and overwhelmed? Is that the, I, that's, I what know I, the... that's what I'm getting. I'm like, what is I'm like, first of all, can't the lawyer be a mom? But like, OK, that's besides the point. Amen. What's a mom shot? Is it just I think just tired and like a little fed up? Maybe I'm not sure. Like, is it like generally grumpy and like on 50 milligrams of so loved? I don't really that, know what that looks like. That's the only version of a New York mom. Really. Only. Only. Yeah. No, I don't really. But I think we really just want you and then we can use our imagination and decide who kind of potentially could fit the world. A lot of people talk about volume difference during this time. And I think I'm going to be a Debbie Downer for just a minute, but it's just reality that I think casting directors are getting a lot of pressure because they're like, well, if it's self-tapes, you guys can see so many more self-tapes. This is so wonderful. And I'm very happy to work in an office where the volume is the same because I don't want to waste actors time and money if they can't get the job like why am i going to make you pay for coaching a blowout like all the things that actors have to think about getting a reader paying a reader sometimes if i'm just doing it for the sake of volume and so i think actors have been happy because they're like i have more of a chance and like casting directors are seeing more self-tapes and sometimes that can be true and also i don't know that's always the best thing for the actor yeah i'd love you to be able to send you a self-tape and say, you know what, Michelle, you have a real chance at this because I'm only selecting 20 people. Your chances are excellent Listen, to actually get this I, job. We appreciate it. I mean, it goes both ways. Like, I think personally, I would appreciate that. I think I understand other people who would say, I don't know, I guess I'm talking to a lot of people now. And for the most part, and there's a couple exceptions here and there. For the most part, people are sort of talking about how they're not getting auditions as much as they used to. And they don't really understand why, because there's probably more projects than ever before. But there's this, well, granted, some pilots, obviously, and like there's an impending possible writer's strike. So there's a lot going on in the environment of the industry. But I do think I'm hearing a lot of like, what's going on? I mean, I thought auditions would be more now than less. So I think it just comes and goes. You can't really spend too much time thinking about what that means. And that's such a beautiful statement right there, Michelle, because I think... Everything in this industry is a trend. And it's like when you're joyful, acknowledge it. When it's not going so great, acknowledge that too and know that it's the joy is going to change and so is the sadness. It's like just keep trucking yeah. because it's all a trend. And I'm hearing like a lot it. about impending writer strike as well. And it's yeah. like, oh, it's it's just everything's screeching to a halt. Even if that's true, it's going right. to change. It's temporary. It is. But I like it's a trend too. I think it's a great way of looking at it. Yeah. So, yeah, so you so see about the same. So the volume, I mean, I guess it's a hard thing, but I think people do want to know. So like approximately like how much for a coast, how many people for a co-star and how many people for like a guest star? So it really does depend because we've had directors in the past. I think I can say this. Um, I, we worked with um, an amazing director named Joachim Trier on a feature called Louder Than Bombs. And I've never met a director that truly loves watching actors' performances more. And he's such a sweet, dear man who's a creative genius. And so we'd send Joachim a link and he would not have any negative notes for us. He'd just be like, yes, oh my gosh, these are wonderful. Great job, ladies. More. And we were like, more? Like, how more? And he'd be like, oh, I just love it. And so then there are directors like that who just want to see what actors have to offer and want a lot of variety. And that's okay. But I try to limit myself, again, just in the realm of like giving people an actual shot at the job to 20 to 30 for a co-star um, or a smaller role in a film. 
And it depends on the process for a larger guest star or a supporting, yeah. really, because I might just be able to use the list from my brain and go, oh, these are the five people that I know that can really do this. I'm going to see more. Yeah. But I'm going to see a little bit less because I can count on my ringers to kind of right. get the job done. Yeah. So it really does. Volume is a tricky one because it, and it's also who you're yeah. working with and for as well. For sure. Like you said, some people want to see less. Some people want to see more. Some people don't even give you a reason probably why they want to see more. They just do. And you're like, all right, here we go. Back to the drawing board. And then on that note, how many approximately do you send to the director, producers or showrunners or whoever And so it is? that's really different, too. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I can't be more no, exact. It does not need to be. I, this is the answer is the answer. The answer so. is the answer. And the answer really is that's a preference, too. You know, I'm always a little bit in the camp of like, well, let's start by sharing bigger links and then, you know, see how the director reacts to the first link and how we need to adjust, right? My whole job is learning. It's like day one is sitting down in your first day at a college class. And your job as a student is to learn how to write for the professor. That's my job for the director. So I will usually send a pretty bulky link the first time. And then they'll tell me pretty quick. They'll be like, that's too much. I can't even get through this, which again, I, I usually don't send more than maybe 20 per roll, maybe 15 to 20 yeah. generally, depending on the size and the specificity and the special skills and all that kind of stuff. And then I kind of adjust from there. And what's yeah. kind of super special about the actor or the casting director, director collaboration is sometimes I'll send a link and the director will be like, oh my gosh, this is all wrong. Like I've got the age all wrong. I've got the type all wrong. And so all you actors out there who may get a breakdown that makes no sense to you, like you are a 50-year-old woman and you get a breakdown for a 20 to 30-year-old woman and you're like, casting doesn't get me. My rep clearly doesn't get me. What am I doing in this industry? You're just getting an old breakdown. And it's yeah. okay. The thing to think about in that sense is that once you've gotten the self-tape appointment, the bottom of the breakdown doesn't mean so much anymore because the job has been achieved. Your headshot met the adjectives of the breakdown. And now it's time to look up and think about who the showrunner is and who the director is and how you can kind of match, you know, that vibe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's great advice. You're, and it's a great reminder because I, I mean, I definitely know I have a friend who booked uh, Orange is the New Black and it was like, the breakdown was like 20s hipster and he was like, None of those things. <laughs> I'm not in my twenties. I'm not for a couple, you know, a little while, and I, I'm not a hipster. And he's like, I think even his agent questioned it and was like, just do it, and he booked it. So you never really know. It's oh, crazy. We're never going to make you just spin your wheels for nothing. True. There's always a reason. So before we go into projects, and I just want to be mindful sure. of time, but what do you love about actors, and what do actors do that is so awesome in an audition? Thank you for that question. So often we're asked, like, great what one. could actors do better? But it's like, no, no, no. We just, there are so many great act things that actors do. So brave, bold choices when the role calls for it is wonderful. And mm -hmm. the actor magic that I can't quite understand and never want to understand because it's a great part of my job is the homework that you all do on the inside to figure out who these people are to you. And I love it when actors can find the balance of this beautifully well-developed specific character that's also like 15% who they are. So even if I don't know them, I get a sneak peek into their life perspective 
and it becomes like a sociology lesson sometimes. And that's just the magic that I can't get enough of. The other thing that I love is, you know, I think actors are trained that it is their job to respect and revere writing. And, but they're taught that in educational institutions where they're taught that and then handed Shakespeare or like a really good play. And so I like it when actors are slightly less reverent towards the writing in TV and film. I mean, some writing really should have respect and a lot of it doesn't need it. And so what I love is when an actor kind of gets a little messy with punctuation or maybe the writer's been really literal and says the word beat in parentheses and they find their own journey, not for novelty's sake, but because that's what their prep called for. And all of a sudden, the magic happens where they move a comma or they take a beat in a different place. And I, as an audience member, go, oh, now I understand. Now I understand what the writer meant. Now I understand what this character wants. And guess what? I'm stealing that beat. And I'm going to make the next 10 actors in my audition room do that beat because you're a genius. That is the true magic. And that's one of the things I miss about being live in the room with actors is you don't get that as much, but you still get it in a self-tape where you're like, ah, I get it now. Or that's like exactly what I pictured when I read the script. It's like pure special artistic magic and I can't get enough. Oh, it's so much joy right there. So nice. Well, then let me ask, because again, like you said, you know, we're not in the room anymore. Another thing that's being lost, this is a weird question to ask, but I do want to ask it. You guys as casting directors are like the middle gatekeepers, if you will, right? You're the ones that not only are like, oh, this actor's great, but also like he or she seems like a decent person, someone who I trust being on set. How do you navigate not being able to do that anymore? Because you can't vouch for many people unless you know them or you remember them from in-person auditions. If an actor submits a self-tape to you, you have no idea whether they're a decent person and whether they'd be willing to take direction or good on set. So how do you navigate that? It is tricky. I, I will be honest. I think sometimes, you know, you can always, I think reading human emotion is part of my job and not just in the acting space. An artist could come yeah. into my room and I would kind of get a vibe and be like, okay, what could this be like on set for our director that right. you don't get anymore? So. Um, we still do callbacks. That's such an important part of the process because if an actor is not directable or might be a different personality to deal with, I want my director to see it. And you can definitely still get that on a Zoom just as you could in a room um, because the adrenaline is so high and the energy is really different. So that part remains the same. And then in the smaller role category, you just kind of have to have trust if a director is going to go off tape and go, you know, the other really great thing that that Breakdown Services provides and um, is just it's a peek at the resume, not because I need you to have gone to Yale grad, but like, can you walk and talk on a set? And And if you haven't done it, that doesn't stop you from getting the job by any means. But it's a reference check kind of to go, yeah. oh, they did a They did a student film at Columbia. They've been on a set before. Wonderful. Yeah. An extra little bit of checking, I think, is super helpful. Excellent. And then lastly, how do you guys split shows in your office? So I noticed, for instance, Jody works on, she was working on Fleischman is in Trouble, and you're working on other projects that don't have her name on it. So I was curious as to how you guys navigate that. Yeah. So, you know, we've all been together for a really long time. 
I've been with LR for 15 years, and then I brought Jody on after her time at CBS, and I think she's been shining around for 12. And our lovely associate Kim started as my intern and has oh, grown wow. to an associate and pretty much a casting director in her own right. And we each have material preferences. So sometimes it can be material. So I've really, really been loving comedy lately. And there are jobs when, you know, we'll get a script in and I'll be like, LR, get this job for me, please. I want to point this with you. And she'll do her magic and hopefully get the job for us. And we all have like little specialties that we love and just know a lot about in the space. So Jody really knows all the young people, like young people out of leagues. She loves auditioning kids. And so if something is really heavy in that, I'm like, I got my own two kids at home and I love them, but I don't really love other people's kids. Go with Jesus. You find all the actor kids you want. And then sometimes we get to attached to directors, which can be right. a really lovely thing where it's like, oh, you know, Eddie um, Burns, Eddie Burns, if he's got a project, it's for me or like, you know, Oren Moverman loves working with Jody and they have a longstanding relationship. So if an Oren project comes in, we know that's going to be Jody. And so it's a real joy to kind of, you know, you get to work in what you like to work yeah. in most of the time and stretch and develop in what you really like. Well, are you a big Adam Sandler fan? Because I saw Murder Mystery 2 is on your... Isn't that is, fun? That sounds I'm, so fun. I'm so excited. Like, that's not usually the kind of stuff that we get to cast. We really, we do a lot of TV, but we're really trained in the indie film gritty yeah. content space. Which and is a great space. I mean, wonderful. But like the last but. few times I've, you know, I just got to see our film Bottoms today, which is hilarious with, you know, Elizabeth Banks producing and getting to work on Murder Mystery 2 with Happy Madison. It's like I'm checking awesome stuff off of my career bucket list in the comedy space. And I've it's just been hilarious and fun and just something different. I got to ask, and we can totally take this out if okay. you're like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I just thought of this. So I know in Bottoms, Kaya Gerber is in it. Yes. Um, and I don't think I've seen her act before. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she's attached to something else that hasn't come out yet. But how does that process work? Like, did she get an audition? And if she did get an audition, do you remember it? How is that? Like, how does it work when you have someone like that who's like a mega star? She's a model in her own right. And obviously, a lot of models want to get into acting and may not have the credit. So how does that work? We really worked with her. Is how You know, yeah. I think it was the same process. The joy about a feature like Bottoms is it's all people playing high school. They are very much not yeah. high school aged. I but noticed that. Everybody was on an equal playing field in that way, where you can't really say that you have this lifetime of 40 years of credits. It's like, well, no, if you want the job, come and play. And Kaya was so game to come. And she did a self-tape first. And then she came and did some chem sessions with our whole crew on Zoom, which can be so awkward. And she really brought it in a fun way. And I think, okay. you know, sometimes people look at somebody like Kaya and they're like, oh, I know why she was, you know, market value. And she's got all these TikTok people, whatever the, I sound like I'm 97, TikTok people. No, I, I think you're right. It's like, it's, <laughs> I don't know, you know if she has a TikTok. No, but you know what she's I mean? like, like Insta famous. And she definitely has a following. She so has a following. Yes. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to trust that she can do the job on the day. And yes. that is a very improv heavy film. And so can you keep up? Oh, good. And the answer was yes. And so she had to go through the same thing that everybody else did. And Fair. Yeah. 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 
put all those people, those Nepo baby <laughs> things to, to, to the side, guys. All right. That's it, right. It's the same process. And also, like, she deserves to try this out, too. So Well, and also it doesn't hurt that she looks like her mom. Like, let's just be real about that. She's so beautiful. I was like, so gorgeous. Stunning. Stunning. She's a beautiful girl. Yeah. And she's in it. Like, I know she's also dating an actor and I'm sure she got like a coach or something as well. So, you know, people need to start somewhere. And, I, you know, I'm excited to see that movie. And I'm excited to see a lot of the stuff. You also have Sharper, which I just wanted to touch on. So that is starring Julianne Moore and Sebastian Stans for Apple TV. Is there anything you can tell us about that before we go? Yeah, it's a wild ride. It drops tomorrow on Apple TV. If you can and you're in New York, it's at the Regal Union Square. We just saw it the other day, and it is really a beautiful film to watch in the theater. So if Excellent. you're still into having that experience, go check it out. It's a wild, twisty, turny. It's a, a really good popcorn film. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you, Marissa, so much for doing this. I really enjoyed talking with you about all of it, not just your journey, but just your take on actors and the joy that you have in the relationship you get to have with them and, and championing for them. So thank you. Thanks and, for having um, me, Michelle. Thanks for appreciate um, it. We'll yeah. stay connected. So. And oh, wait, how can people find you? How can people work with you? I know you do privates and over Zoom. How, how can people find you? Yeah. So the email address that I use is lrclasses at gmail.com. And the main experience that I'm offering right now is self-tape feedback. People send me three to four recent self-tapes. I watch them. I take copious notes. And then we zoom it out for, for 30 minutes. And I tell you what's going really well and what could be tighter. And that's been really fulfilling because it's like being in the room with an actor again. That sounds lovely. I'll have to think about my, myself. <laughs> that sounds nice. Okay, great. So I'll put that in the show notes as well for everyone listening. And again, thank you, Maribeth. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you haven't yet, do me a favor, drop a five-star review, follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, and find me on Instagram. I'm at, at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic. Share this in your stories. Let me know what you think. Share it with a friend, and I'll see you next time.